and welcome everybody. You're listening to The Breakfast Show on Faith FM 87.6, 87.8 or 88. Right across Australia, right across the Faith FM network, wherever you are. Positively different radio in the morning. You are with the Double L team, Larlen. Lawson. Lawson, what are you thankful for this morning? Oh man, I, so yesterday, you know, do, do some work here. Well, here, do the radio show, you know, did, did some work, been doing some designing, go home, do some Bible studies over Zoom, do some more designing. Hits five o'clock in the afternoon, walk out of the house. Put my helmet on, get on my motorbike, go down my backyard, and just ride. And there wasn't ride a Karen there to yell at you. No, no, no Karens, no nothing. No, I was just in my backyard, and it was just like, oh, I felt like a kid. Hey, because when I was growing up, like racing motorbikes, like it was my my mandate to to come home. I'd come home and like jump on my bike and ride until the sun went down, and then go in and do my homework and eat dinner and go to bed. Like, because it was just so like you, my you just went back to your childhood. Dude, seriously, I put my, you know, now technology's come forward. I've got like my um, Bluetooth headphones. My mum called me while I was riding and I could just talk to her over the phone. Like, she could just hear me and I'm just riding around. But yeah, just like doing laps of the track, listening to music and like, you know, you get into like a bit of a flow state. It's like if anyone's ever done running or cycling or anything like that, you know, you get into this, this flow state where you're just like going and, and, and riding. And for me, I just can't like ride normally. I can't just be like, oh, yeah, I'm just going to ride for fun. Like, I'm like, okay, I'm going to do five laps standing up. Oh, I'm going to, you know, be on my toes, da, 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 like doing like training drills. But yeah, it was just, I felt like a child again. I was like, this is, <laughs> this is me when I was like 15 years old, like 14, whatever. Like, oh, it was so classic. This is Lawson living the lockdown was, life in the bush. Dude, literally living the dream. It was in the, the bush. It it's was the best the place to be during lockdown is in the bush. Yes. You know, I, I, I can't I, agree more. Everybody I'm so who, glad that I live Everybody there. who's in lockdown, go and find some bush somewhere because that is the best place that you can be. And just enjoy it. You yeah. Know? Just, just however you like to enjoy it, enjoy it. Especially if you've got a motorbike. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. Have a look at some positively different news. I'm starting off with some not very positive news, but there is a positive twist on this, basically, uh, well, essentially, kind of in the aftermath now of Hurricane Ida, which has been the second biggest hurricane to hit Louisiana, um, has really affected all up the, the East Coast, particularly the Northeast, where they had really heavy rains. And essentially, I don't, I don't want to say too much on this. I don't want to give, you know, an extensive, um, report or anything, but I did want to say, so although, so, uh, insurance companies are estimating that the payout's going to be around $20 billion mm-hmm. in damage, which is massive. Yes. That's enormous. Huge. Check this out. Compared to Hurricane Katrina in 2005, yes. which claimed the lives of 1,300 people in Louisiana alone, yes. only 14 people nationwide have, been, have, have lost their lives in one of the worst hurricanes and this is a, this in is, almost this 20 is years. This is the increasing trend that we see, isn't it? Yeah. Lots... You know, bigger bigger insurance payouts and lots less people losing their lives. That's right. So bigger storms, bigger problems, an increase in storms, an increase in the regularity of these kinds of weather events, mm. but less people losing their lives. That's right. And, of course, like it's incredibly tragic for those 14 people who did end up losing their lives and there was it situations is. where people were trapped in basement homes and all these things, which is, which is awful. But compared to the 1,800 people who lost their lives in 2005 in Katrina, like, it's direct. Yeah, like, and you go back in history and you've got 
thousands of people losing their lives in much smaller storms. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So it seems as though we're kind of we're working out how to deal with this, these things for now. We've kind of got the the drills in place. The buildings are holding firm, but oof, dude, that's a big payout. There's twenty billion dollars. That's a lot of money. But anyways, let's have a look at some other news. Oh, so do you remember a couple of weeks ago when I talked about how the Mars rover tried to take a sam- a rock sample from Mars and then it just disappeared? And NASA was really confused. Yes, and yes. they're just like, what's going on? Like, they watched it pick up a rock, and then the rock disappeared. And still to this day, like, they've done all of the calculations. They've they've watched all the finish, uh, the footage, sorry. They've looked over all the telemetry, and they have no idea where the rock sample went. It just literally they picked it up, and it disappeared. Uh, but it has successfully um, retrieved a rock that will be heading back uh, to the U.S., uh, it'll be heading back to to Earth um, in its on its second attempt. So, so is this is this the rock that disappeared, or is this the rock? No, they, they, new rock. A, there's a new, new rock. rock. They've drilled out a new rock. It's taken the sample, and it'll be coming back. The first rock, they 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 just lost. They're like, we actually don't know what happened. It just it just just disappeared. They wow. looked at the telemetry, the footage, like everything. They have no idea. Um, but yeah, the Perseverance rover, you know, getting around it on Mars. Um, yeah, it's been able to take a rock and keep it this time. Uh, but it's doing some really awesome work. They've already like kind of mapped out a large area that it's been traveling around that looks really cool. You know, there's kind of valleys and depressions and all these things. Mars just really looks like a big rock, uh, you know, especially compared to Earth. Like, there's nothing... It's really interesting, like, terrain. It is fascinating Um, stuff. You can kind of see valleys and it looks like, you know, there's all kinds of... Planet Earth kind of stuff going on yeah, there that's in, right. in places. But essentially the whole planet is like the Grand Canyon. <laughs> yes. There's like, there's like nothing going on there. So interesting that uh, we we have so many who are kind of banking on Mars as a, as a, as a last-ditch hope and trying to get over there. Um, in, in news relating to that, actually, dude, between like the big three, Elon Musk... Um, Jeff Bezos and Richard Branson, they are like consistently having crazy battles over this whole space race thing. Well, Richard Branson, um, he is now being like investigated by the US Federal Aviation Administration for going off course during his Virgin Galactic space ride. He was like in unauthorized airspace and and not following the path. And I'm like, oh, that could be a conspiracy right there. But it's probably not. He probably just like, I don't know, miscalculated. The plane like made it. Everyone made it. But they went outside of their allotted like... Why is this a problem? I mean, space is a rather big place. I know. What were they going to run into? Was there somebody else flying around out there? Were they going to hit a satellite? Oh, maybe maybe they're going to hit a satellite. I don't know. But they had authorized them. Okay, you can use this space so that you don't interfere with anything. And then they, like, went outside of it. Um, Thing is, Richard Branson's a billionaire. I don't know if this is something that carries, like, civil penalty. (laughs) Like, you have to go to jail for flying outside of the... the, Yeah, I wonder whether that's, you know, similar to what happens if, say, a pilot, you know... Moves outside of his allotted space when he's in controlled airspace. Yeah, but that's like. It, I wonder what would happen to a that, pilot. A pilot a I'm pretty sure that I should find out what would be the penalty if you actually did that. I, I'm pretty sure that brings like pretty heavy penalties. Because, I think it would because you can be commercial pilots. Yeah, because you can become a threat. You know. Oh, absolutely. 
Uh, there's there's numerous examples of mid-air collisions yeah. because people have wandered outside of or wandered into controlled airspace. But this is the thing, is that, bro, he's in space. Like, what's it? What's, yeah. What's it, and they're, they're, like, really... So, so NASA owns this space? I, I, someone owns it. <laughs> <laughs> someone owns it. But even first, And why is NASA upset? Why isn't, you know, Russia upset as well? Because they fly in space a lot as well. Yeah, maybe they have their own space. But did that, did that, to go to space, do you have to get permission from all of the space Yeah, that's countries? right. Who owns space? India, China, Russia, yeah. NASA, America. And if you fly out far enough, are you just like in like international space at that point? Like there's no rules? You, well, that's interesting as well. Yeah. Wouldn't, wouldn't it be similar to uh, rules in international waters? Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. I would think it would, you would have similar legislation out there as what you would have in international waters. Yeah. But, that would make sense. But you'd have to go through claimed space to get to international space. Yeah, but claimed space is just kind of like the 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 the, well, the, the hey, air above the air above your country, isn't but, it? But but they're like they're making a big thing about it. They're like, hey, you drifted off course, buddy. Like they're they're really gonna, clamping down on this guy. There you go. <laughs> but anyway, wait. Wow. Lastly, this morning, I, I read, dude, I read this epic article um, about this new system of irrigation that is amazing. It's basically giving the ability to people to grow, like, all kinds of vegetables in the middle of the desert without using crazy amounts of water. They call it the... Um, the Bible they- says the desert will blossom. Dude, they calls it the RDI system. And essentially, it's this, like, super advanced drip irrigation system where there's these tubes that run under the plants that have these, like, poor depressions in it that sense a chemical that the plant releases once it is, like, getting thirsty and then drips oh, water up cool. to it. That and is so, so dude, cool. Dude, check this out. So they've been able to use 30 to 50% less water because they know exactly when the plant is thirsty and how much yeah, to get Yeah, because normally we just like, oh, I think it's probably thirsty, throw some water at yeah, it. Yeah, but each individual plant knows exactly what it needs. And because it gives it exactly what it needs. It, dude, this is in the desert in Pakistan. Check this out. Vegetables like tomatoes and bok choy were growing 81% faster and twice as large. That's wild. That is, you know, my wife has been growing and kind of executing the odd houseplant recently. Yeah. And she's been focusing on houseplants that talk to her. Yeah. Ones that let her know when they need to be watered rather than just, you know, put some water in there once a week. It's like, no, when its leaves do this, then you water it. Yeah. now you have a chemical solution. This is this is the best. This is, this is the pinnacle right here. And we're going to see it probably expand right across the world. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. Interesting result. Interesting outcome from COVID. COVID has resulted in a 30% increase in the number of guitars being sold. Have you purchased a guitar during COVID? I've purchased like two guitars. <laughs> okay, so you've contributed well to this. So, <laughs> yeah, dude. And here's the really wait, bizarre no, thing. Wait, 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 no. I've purchased three guitars since last year. <laughs> since COVID started, I've this bought. This might be an addiction. I've bought like a bass and an acoustic and an electric guitar. So. This might be an addiction. <laughs> no, I, I use them sometimes. Okay, so here's the really bizarre thing. <laughs> I don't play the guitar. Yeah. I acquired a, a guitar during COVID. You you didn't buy a guitar. No, I didn't buy one, but I acquired <laughs> you one. Picked 
one off from up from Council Clean Up, dude. That's like that's a good guitar. Yeah, There's nothing wrong with it. We play it here in the office sometimes <laughs> between between takes, between between segments. It's good. Yeah, but yeah, okay, but fair enough. Somebody even tuned it before they put it out on the street. <laughs> Yeah, I, Lyle brings it in. He's like, look what I found on the street. And I'm like, oh, man, it's in tune. <laughs> tuned it up, put it on the street. I picked it up, brought it here. So so between the two of us, we've acquired four guitars during lockdown. Yes. So we are typical. So this is one of the interesting things. This is one of the great things about uh, COVID lockdown is that people have uh, um, turned to these kinds of, you mm. know, this is, a, this is an excellent thing to do is to do music. Yeah, that's right. Uh, during lockdown. Okay, so Fender, uh, who apparently create a lot of guitars, uh, you've probably heard of these guys. I don't yeah, know. I'm I own a Fender. Them. Okay, you own a Fender. Um, they actually track instrument sales. And in the United States, uh, there's about $1.5 billion worth of instruments that are sold every year. And what's interesting is that $600 million worth of those instrument sales go to praise and worship. Yeah. So the relig- you, you cut out the religious community, you've cut out a third of all of your instrument sales, and imagine for a moment just how much uh, religion, and Christianity in particular, because Christianity is probably out of all of the religions the one that does the most with um, you know, musicians and mm. music and performing and so forth. Yeah. You don't find that so much with the other religions, but imagine how much Christianity is actually contributing to the arts. Mm. Now, that's interesting because if you think about it and you track it back over history and you look at, uh, you compare Christian nations with non-Christian nations and compare the contribution to the arts, and once again you're going to find that Christianity has made a massive contribution to the arts uh, down through uh, down through the centuries. Yeah, definitely. And so we find that church is a major driver of talent. That's about a third. A third of all musical instruments uh, sold to, to uh, worship People involved in worship. There's over one million people who are leading out or performing in worship every week in the United States. Well, I'm not in the United States, but I am one of those people. You are one of those, but I am not one of those people. (laughs) Well, it's interesting, dude, when you go to the guitar shops, like particularly, we have a guitar shop here in Newcastle. It is like my favorite shop in the world. Like, before lockdown, you know, I'd just go there on a Sunday and just play a bunch of guitars and then, like, buy a set of strings and leave after, like, an hour. Um, but I have bought guitars I, I from suspect, there. I suspect there are a number of people who do yeah, the same so thing. Yeah, so many people. But if you tell them, like, because I've gone there on behalf of the church and bought instruments from there, like, yes. whether it's um, being, like, uh, guitars or particularly pianos. I've bought pianos for churches, like, not with my own money, but on behalf of churches that I've been yeah, yeah. working for. They're like, hey, Lawson, you do music. You know, go we buy. have a budget go by yep. this and you tell them like hey i'm looking for some setup for church and they're like oh well this is our range that you know we usually and this is like a guitar shop where it's like the promotion is like heavy metal and like long hair dudes and like super and then you tell them oh yeah i'm from a church and they have like and they're super literate about church's needs church instruments yeah yes. they're like oh yeah well so we've got this you know this is a sound system that you know i sold this to a church group two weeks ago like you know these this is thing this actually from fender this is like what they're you know this this particular setup and, da, 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 and it's like yeah they're super into it they know what's up because there's a, just it's a, a huge massive amount part of, of their market yeah that's right I never actually really stopped to think about this before. Okay, now, uh, the guitar is by far the number one instrument found in worship since the 1970s, Mm -hmm. and this has come about because of its portability, its 
inexpense and it is easier to learn than keyboard instruments. So up until the 1970s, worship music was dominated by keyboard instruments, organs, pianos and so forth, uh, which are kind of large and kind of heavy. You know, it's not like you can take a pipe organ to, (laughs) you know, your campfire on the beach where you are sitting around with a bunch of young people and having a praise and worship time. Yeah, that's right. Especially when you've got one of those ones, it's like the whole building and... Yes. (laughs) You can't do that. But uh, the guitar, which has been around for a very, very long time, of course, is a Spanish instrument. You lived in Spain for a while. Yeah, And uh, this is where that instrument originated from. And it's just super practical. Mm -hmm. Um, It's also practical for things like, you know, new church plants, prayer meeting, small groups, you know, uh, campfire settings, those kind of things. People just grab a guitar and you are good to go. And then you get on the addiction route and then you've got a guitar for all of those different... So you start off with one guitar to do everything that you just said and now I have a guitar for every single one of those. (laughs) So I've got my beach guitar that's like a mini one that I can take on the play and then I've got my bigger acoustic for worship Then I've got my electric for making music Then I've got my bass for worship and making music and yeah and then okay never mind um. <laughs> <laughs> okay all right so that's an interesting story i thought that you would all enjoy all right texas uh has banned abortion past six weeks oh wow and uh this is an interesting law because it's called the heartbeat law as soon as you can see a heartbeat you can't perform an abortion uh and of course most women don't actually even know that they're pregnant until they are past that particular point mm. and so this has been very very strongly condemned by Joe Biden as a violation of women's rights it'll almost eradicate abortion from the state of Texas mm. and it's been challenged in the Supreme Court and Supreme Court in a 5-4 finding has upheld the Texas law wow uh, and so doctors, so it's an interesting law because it's not a criminal, it hasn't created a criminal offence. It's created a legal framework so that doctors can be sued if they perform an abortion once a heartbeat has been detected. So it's pretty mm. scary for doctors to uh, to launch into this one. And as such, what it becomes is a citizen-enforced law mm. rather than a criminal offence. So interesting to watch what is ha- taking place there in Texas, and uh, yeah, praise God for uh, what the, for that decision. I think it's a fantastic decision in defence of those who are the most defenceless. Mm. All right, let's talk about mandatory vaccinations. Let's travel over to the United States. Very, very different country, the United States, than Australia, and we often forget this. Mm-hmm. We are so saturated with American television and American culture that we live often under the assumption that we're under American law. Mm. We are not. We are not, no. No. And Michigan University has recently uh, created a rule as a private company, of course, that uh, requires mandatory vaccinations for any of their students competing in sport. There were four students girls who uh, who who were opposed to this and took it to court and it was uh, the courts found in their favor of course they were looking for religious exemptions mm-hmm. and the courts found in their favor they won based on religious exemptions because of freedom of conscience as found in the first amendment basically the court said you know this is this is unlikely to ever uh, 
ever be able to be legally enforced because of freedom of conscience as enshrined in the First Amendment. Mm. And this is the only university in the United States that has tried to attempt this, whereas I suspect here in Australia this kind of thing is going to be the norm pretty much everywhere you go yeah. uh, in not just private institutions but public institutions as well, and we don't have that legal protection. It's already happening. Like, oh, yeah. There's heaps of people who are in workplaces where it's mandatory. Mandatory vax. Mm. It's interesting in Victoria right now that uh, about 4.6, I think, percent of ambulance uh, workers are not vaccinated and refusing to be vaccinated. That's like 300, nearly 300 people. That'd be a big chunk out of the workforce right there. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. All right, let's uh, go to our interview of the day. And joining us on the phone right now is Dr. John Ashton. Dr. John Ashton, welcome to the show. Yeah, hi, Lyle. Good to be on. Now, I understand that we're talking about dinosaurs in Australia today, and this is a, a great subject to discuss because, you know, recently we've found several large dinosaurs. I imagine we have a whole bunch of small ones as well. But what can we actually learn about dinosaurs in Australia? Yeah, sure. Well... Um, I had the opportunity just um, in July to um, travel up to uh, Queensland uh, before the lockdown happened. And uh, one of the things that we decided to do out there while we are in the outback was visit some of the um, dinosaur um, display centres that are around that's, uh, near Winton, Hewenden, Richmond and, and so forth. And uh, some of the displays there are quite spectacular. Not in one of the uh, displays, they had uh, bones from those really large uh, plant-eating uh, dinosaurs. You know, that are about thirty meters long, hundred feet long, and um, they had the actual bones there. That uh, well, the fossilized bones that um, uh, they they covered them in just a clear coating, but you could actually go up and touch them, and they were absolutely huge. And I think. You know, it just emphasised the reality of um, these uh, creatures. And uh, then at Richmond, of course, I had a, an amazing display of uh, a copy of a, a replica of a, um, well, it was a replica of a, a dinosaur fossil that was actually found near there by a young girl, actually, um, and a family that were fossicking around this. Uh, uh, it was, uh, again, to see the... Um, the actual, uh, well, the actual uh, bones have been transferred, I think, across to Harvard University for studying. But um, one of the things is I looked at the, watched the documentaries that were in these museums as they uh, particularly um, sort of covered the discovery of some of these large bones. They were found by a farmer on the surface well, they were sticking up out of the ground. He thought, oh, this is an unusual rock. And so here were these bones there in this sort of soil plain um, out in the, in the farmland. And as I, as I looked at uh, these things, and I, uh, and, you know, I watched the documentary and the filming of, um, of them finding the, the actual uh, remains of the, some of these giant animals, um, I thought, you know, that, those remains can't be that old. Um, you know, they're so close to the surface there, um, and we know, sure, there's been some, some weathering and, and, and this sort of thing, but 
not in the sense of, uh, of, of millions of years old. And I think this has been powerfully confirmed by the number of research papers that have now been published where they've found soft tissue in these uh, dinosaur remains. And uh, matter of fact, uh, there was a paper published um, just in March this year in, in microscopy uh, today, um, that uh, which is a Cambridge University Press uh, journal. And uh, again, they'd actually found nerve tissue in the uh, remains, uh, in the fossilised remains of a um, triceratops, you know, one of those big three-horned uh, dinosaurs with the giant plate mm. um, in front of their head. And um, th- and this was soft tissue. They found actually nerve tissue surviving. And um, it's, it's interesting now there's a, another site, uh, a creationist site, where they actually uh, monitor the uh, maintain a list of peer-reviewed journal articles on surviving uh, biological materials, including DNA, in these um, so in these dinosaur remains and other ancient animals that uh, supposedly lived millions of years ago. Doctor John, and, now, what, what uh, if I could just butt in for a quick second? What is the you know soft tissue seems to be very very clear that you know this is impossible for it to be anything like as old as what science has so long claimed that these uh, creatures are. What is science, What? how is science actually trying to explain it? How is evolution trying to explain this soft tissue? So, well, what they're saying is that somehow there's some mechanism that has enabled these biomolecules to be preserved over that time, and they're sort of looking for, are there some sort of preservatives, natural preservatives there? They're really scrambling to try and explain uh, this. And I think the uh, the issue's been exacerbated by the fact that, um, you know, in the past, you know, few years, several dozen peer-reviewed papers now, have now been published. So before they never looked at it, looked for these soft tissues. Now, one of the things is the laws of chemical thermodynamics are acting right against long ages for these biomolecules because these biomolecules involve long-chain polymers. In other words, they involve lots of atoms joined together, carbon atoms joined in links. So remember, carbon has four bonds, and so it very easily forms long chains. And so carbon forms the backbone of all what we call the biomolecules or the molecules, most of the molecules that are involved in living systems because it's able to form these very long chain structures that enable then structures to be built that are very flexible and so forth. But the problem is that all these molecules are vibrating. We're not, they, they have a natural frequency of vibration. And over time, if they're not in a, in a structure, they will break down and... Um, um, and this is it. So long-chain molecules, that's why they form in nature. They tend to break down, and, and we talk about biodegradable materials and all this sort of thing. This is what, what why by, by organic materials break down. They biodegrade, uh, just like the long-chain um, molecules in the, in the plastics in your biodegradable bags. They break down. And it's the same with natural tissues, like muscle tissue, collagen, um, these nerve tissues, DNA in particular, all break down. 
So the fact that they're finding intact these very long um, chain structures and the paper that was published in Microscopy Today is quite significant because there were great long strands of this material, of these nerve fibres, that they were, were there. And so this is really prima facie powerful evidence that these creatures are not millions of years old. And this also concurs with the carbon-14 dating because when we date these biomaterials, so these biomaterials all have carbon structures, so there's carbon there, so we can do the carbon-14 dating. We only get thousands of years. And so geologically, the specimens will be dated as uh, tens of millions of years. Um, you know, for dinosaurs, typically greater than 60 million years. And... Um, but we know, but we find them from carbon dating, they're going to come out only in thousands of years. And so this corroborates really powerfully with the soft tissue that uh, these uh, creatures are nowhere near as old as a claim. And also, again, once you shorten the time, there, there's no way evolution can, you know, can explain. Evolution, we, we know it doesn't work anyway because in terms of the... Um, the mutations required and the number of mutations produce new organisms. But in the minds of evolutionists, you know, they're comfortable with, you know, hundreds of millions of years. But once you take that away from them, they've got absolutely no platform. And I think what we have here, um, and in, in Australia we're finding some really, really large dinosaurs now, you know. Um, I, I understand the largest pterodactyl in the world now has been, uh, has been found here in Australia. Um is really powerful evidence that evolution never happened. The Bible account is the most realistic account of how we came to be here, that there was a creator God, that functioning systems with flowers, plants, animals, insects, all these sort of things, complete ecosystems were created. I mean, this is the other argument, too, against evolution. You know, so many things require, you know, you require complete ecosystems. You know, plants require, um, you know, insects and animals and, and so forth. They're all part of the nitrogen cycle uh, that's required for uh, growth and energy and nutrients. And, you know, there's so much in terms of um, ecosystems for anything to survive, uh, you know, for living systems to survive. They need support animals or, you know, life around them. And um, so the whole biblical picture just makes, so much sense, and as I said, the the young age of everything was reinforced to me as I visited these sites up in in Queensland. Dr. John Ashton, you mentioned there's a, a great difference between the geological age and the carbon fourteen age of the dinosaurs, um, and of course, that's you know the age of the rock or the stone that they are found in, compared to the age given by the soft tissue. Um, just a question that comes to my mind, and I really have no idea whether whether this is a valid question or not, but is there a difference? Would there be a different carbon-14 date uh, that you would find from the soft tissue as opposed to the uh, – can you even get a carbon-14 date from the fully fossilised, which is you know bones that have actually turned to stone where there's no soft tissue? Yeah, so, okay, well, you, you can't unless there is some remaining carbon. So carbon-14 dating dates the, the carbon. Um, and uh, 
But if there is, for example, there's carbon in, in, in bones and uh, these sort of things, so any of this material that hasn't been replaced by a mineral, but generally the bones are replaced uh, by minerals and so there's you know, not sufficient carbon there. But what we do find, for example, say is in a lava flow where maybe some wood has been trapped and bear, you know by the lava that hasn't been completely burned away and... Um, so when you date the rock by uh, radiometric methods, you will typically get a million to the years. Um, but if you date the piece of wood that is encased within that same lava, you will only get uh, thousands of years. And you know this, this is again, you know, we have all this evidence that is uh, just sitting there for us, pointing to young ages. And it just gets brushed over and, you know, and, and, and so forth. Um, you know, it's, it's the same. I was just looking the other day at a, at a picture of a mammal, uh, fossil that had been found, um, that had eaten a baby dinosaur. Um, and so when you, and when you look at, in, you know, the museum to your typical textbook, you'll have the dinosaurs and then the mammals will be set well above that. And so, uh, and it's painting this picture that, um, uh, you know, sort of there's this distinct time. Well, so the evidence is, you know, huge evidence is accumulating now. They live together. And I think what's happened is we've got the amazing sort of David Attenborough programs with the amazing photography and everything, but all the time they're talking about millions of years. And so we've had this massive public education program that, all these systems have evolved over millions of years, and it's just reinforced all around us. But when we look at the actual science data that we have, when we you know, realistically look at the data and say, hang on, what have we got here? It's all pointing to young ages, and that the, the uh, science behind these long ages of the radiometric dating is, is based on assumptions, and those assumptions in actual fact aren't valid. And those numbers that we calculate, they're just numbers that we calculate. They're not, in actual fact, the ages that has been assumed. Hmm. It seems that we've, uh, we've, we've accepted and preached these long ages so long and so vehemently that now that we're getting a massive amount of evidence to disprove them, we are as human beings, very, very reticent to turn around and say that, well, actually, maybe we were wrong. Yes, yes, and it's quite interesting in terms of, you know, uh, political uh, psychology that's been used in the past. You know, one of the the classic examples, if you tell a big enough lie long enough, it will be accepted as a fact. And I think uh, evolution, unfortunately, has been a very, very big lie, but it's been taught for so long now that it's become accepted as a fact. But when we look at the science underpinning evolution from the fact that, you know, mutations can't generate new genetic codes, new meaningful genetic codes. You can't have, you know, duplication errors and this sort of thing creating these amazing new living structures like the eye and our reproductive system. That's absolutely ridiculous. When we look at the ages and the disconcordant uh, ages between radiometric dating and carbon-14 dating and the fact, you know, the carbon-14 dating, which is really the most reliable in terms that we have an absolute value there in, in terms of the, the rate of decay. We know a starting level approximately of carbon-14 and we know that accurately the decay rate. 
and uh, this gives us very young ages compared to the you know the long age radiometric dating. Uh, and then when we put in the soft tissue as well, everything is pulling these ages back. And when we look at the requirements for ecosystems for life, God's creation account where God created everything in a very short time. You know, people have sometimes said, well, in those days in Genesis, you know, maybe they're thousands of years or millions of years or eons of time and they're different days. Well, it's not going to work because you need all those things together at that time uh, needs for a complete ecosystem. And that's why it's so realistic, the Bible account, in my view. Dr. John Ashton, thank you so much for joining us here on Faith FM this morning. We always appreciate what you have to share, and that's just some fascinating information, uh, particularly about dinosaurs here in Australia. Right now, we're going to move on with the show. Thanks for being a part of the Faith FM family. Join our community on Facebook or get in touch at 1-800-FAITH-FM.